We're, let me uh, just give you a word of thanks and update on baby Jones. We thank you for praying for him. Got home from Children's Mercy yesterday afternoon, and he uh, was experiencing a staph infection, which led to scalding skin syndrome. And uh, so he got a uh, what looks like a chemical peel from a spa. So he looks uh, 10 times better than he did when he went in. And he's uh, back to, to being who he is. So we're thankful, thankful to God and thankful for your prayers. Uh, also, just another side note, uh, a word of pastoral instruction. As you uh, saw and witnessed a great step made towards ridding more of the world of the evil of abortion, I think we can confidently say that, um, I would instruct you that as you engage in conversations, as you experience people with opposing views, that you would keep in mind um, that there's a hurting world. And there are people that have committed or submitted to abortions in their past and needed to speak with grace to them and love, give them hope in the gospel of Jesus, but speak the truth with all wisdom and gentleness. And I pray that uh, you'd see fruit in your lives and in your circles as you surely will be engaged with this discussion. Um, and that people would find that, that Jesus forgives, that they're not outside of his grace, and they're definitely not outside of his help and hope. And so speak life in the midst of this, and uh, there will be even greater fruit and life. All right, let us uh, pray. Father God, we come to you because we are forever grateful to you and able to come to you in Jesus' name. We're looking into things that are happening in the heavenlies, things that we are going to behold because of your promise. And uh, we want to be further captivated in awe of a majesty and a glory that we cannot yet comprehend. Um, and Lord, to let you do with that thought, these words, what you have planned to do in our hearts. So we thank you for a look into these amazing beauties of what it looks like around your throne what the experience is. And Lord, we thank you that there is a throne that you sit on, and that you reign forever and all time, now and forever, that we can have great confidence in the things that we endure in Jesus' name, that you will cause all to work for get together for good, and that there is so much yet to come. So we bring praise. We thank you for this word. We hope that these words are used to encourage us, strengthen our faith, bring us more peace because of what is to come yet and be revealed before us. So thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, as we take a break here between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, last time we took a, a break between a series, we looked at Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the churches. We let that inform our lives and our worship as a church, our, our work together as His body. And now we're going to look at Revelation 4 and 5. Today, Revelation 4, I'm going to cover the whole chapter. I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm not going to try and uh, interpret every sign and symbol that there is. Some of them aren't really meant to be looked at in detail. They're just explaining or exclamating the glory of God at the throne. Um, But I want these chapters to inform us that there is worship taking place before a sovereign God who sits on an all-powerful sovereign throne from which He reigns over all the heavens and all the earth. And then Revelation chapter 5 is going to tell us <coughs> how He has accomplished things on behalf of His people that we have yet to look forward to. Revelation 5, somebody is going to come take the scroll And then later on in 6 and 7, break its seals and begin to uh, work out God's plan over all of creation in in efforts to restore it or to bring a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. So we look at Revelation 4. This is not the only or first scene of the throne in heaven that we are shown in Scripture You can look in detail at Daniel 7, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and you can see parallels to this image. And that's the beautiful thing, right, about the consistency of the scriptures, is that when these men, these apostles, these prophets are are shown glimpses of God's glory in the heavens, uh, they are consistent. It may vary in small things because each perspective is a little bit different. Somebody sees one thing and another sees another. And God wants each of them to highlight certain things as they witness these uh, magnificent scenes. But they all consistently speak basically of, of a God whose glory you can't adequately describe so that we understand perfectly how it is. You're going to see mention of these Uh, elders and these uh, figures with these eyes and wings and and you're going to see descriptions of of what it looks like leading up to the throne and then what it looks like around the throne and I think as as John describes these things as we see these things back in uh, scripture that you're not meant to be able to perfectly paint the picture of this magnificent scene like you're Bob Ross or something. You like that reference to Bob Ross? That's a good one. Um, But you're meant to be captivated or or thrown into another realm of of incomprehension about what it is to be uh, before the throne of a sovereign, holy, eternal God. It is meant to place you in the proper position, prostrate before that throne. It's meant to refresh and renew <coughs> your, your vision, your understanding of God as, as 
sovereignly powerful in glory before the universe. And therefore to react accordingly. In which, if, if you can even uh, grasp the slightest idea that these things are, are not able to be truly revealed through human language, if you can grasp just a little bit of that, you begin to understand what it is to be in awe, what it is to fear a holy God, or to have this reverence, this holy reverence before this King of Kings, and to understand that, that what we experience in this world, in the kingdoms, and the governments, and the people, is nothing compared to this God, who reigns like this. You know, I like, or have some weird infatuation with um, the, the monarchy in Great Britain, right? I mean, it's interesting how that family has worked for centuries, and kind of the pomp and circumstance surrounding them, and whenever, you know, they come to uh, inaugurate a new king or queen and how that all works, it's, it's very, very interesting. Everything's really ornate, and the crowns are really heavy, and all, all this sort of stuff, and it, it gets kind of silly at some point, but it's interesting to look at, and, and you've got to know, just as when you look at a mountain or a major mountain peak before you, that that is nothing in comparison to the glory that's being described in the Bible about God. <coughs> and yet, and yet, he is this person who sits on this throne, and yet he deals with us. And you can look in the mirror, and you can look back at your life, and you understand the thoughts that you have and the things that are in your heart, and, and then you begin to be in awe the fact that he is, is condescending in a way to not only deal with you, like he's just got to deal with his responsibility, no, but to love you, to work consistently through your life to bring this, this holiness to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, to bear with you to, in his loving kindness as he's patient through your stumblings and your weaknesses, to want such people to look to him and to de depend on him, to be willing to be called their God when sometimes we even profane his name. So it's not only that the majesty of God is seen in, in these undescribable, uh, magnificent glories of emerald and jasper and voice like a trumpet and thunder and lightning peals coming from this throne, but it's that he loves as that figure. He saves, he redeems as that figure. He gives his son as that most holy, glorious figure. He becomes man to save men as that figure. So that's why Paul in Philippians can describe the humility of Christ as the ultimate humility, the, the ultimate condescension. You and I <coughs> cannot even begin to understand what it must be for this God on this throne to become a man in first century Palestine. It's, it's crazy, right? And, and we're, we're asking people, the Bible's asking people that you understand the love of God in that. 
that this isn't some high and lofty figure that we have to work our way up to. In fact, if he is this high and lofty figure that we see in Revelation 4, we aren't getting up there on our own. Therefore, he must come down, or we're doomed. And even in him coming down, that, that could spell doom still. <clears throat> but in fact, he did come from there into this place. You've seen shows like Undercover Boss, right? Where the billionaire boss or the multimillionaire boss, he goes undercover and he works like the rest of the people or whatever. And, uh, and you see kind of the him getting dirty with the rest of them and serving people with the rest of them. I mean, that, that is not even close to what Jesus has done by leaving this picture in Revelation 4 and coming here. <clears throat> so when you look at the glory of God, as I promise we'll do in a minute, um, understand that he is inviting filthy, vile sinners to witness that glory without being destroyed by it and thereby be brought further into a meditation of the gospel that comforts your heart and surrounds you with a peace that surpasses understanding which I believe is what Paul's talking about at the end of Philippians because as Richard Sibbs said the happiest of, of men are basically those who understand the mercies of God and live at peace with him. Verse 1. This is after the letters to the seven churches have been communicated to John. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. <clears throat> this is uh, much in reference to how the letter started, or how the revelation started, <clears throat> as uh, John is, is introduced to Jesus in his glory speaking these things from his position in glory from the heavens and being invited to see and to hear what must take place. Now, you and I cannot imagine being in John's position, and we see that from John. At times, he has brought to his knees, and he's, he's invited to again get up. He's invited to again to keep looking at these things. He's commanded to record these things. And I've always been convinced, as much as I've read the letter or the, or the revelation, I've, I've been convinced that John is just writing what he can, as best he can. And that is, that is sufficient because we cannot grasp the glory of God. So he is just, okay, it looks like a sea of glass, right? It's a metaphor. You and I do that all the time. I think about when Jones was just in the hospital, and I was telling everybody, he looked like a lizard. He looked like a reptile. You know, his skin was just scaly and peeling off. Like, he looked like he was shedding uh, his skin. And we, and we use that language to speak to 
people and to help get them a, a basic understanding of what we're talking about. Now, when you actually see the person or see the picture or are in front of this throne, then you will know. Right? We get that in 1 Corinthians 13. Now you see in a mirror dimly and you understand love kind of in this way and it's just not fully all perfect yet because you don't see him in perfection and you're not in that with him at the current time. You will be. That's promised, right? You've seen a mirror dimly now, but then face to face. And remember, as we went through the letter to the, first Thess- or to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians <coughs> 4, we, we saw this uh, scene that, that Paul describes as he's trying to encourage the church about the last days in which they've been misinformed about. And he's saying, look, you're not going to miss it, right? He's going to descend with the voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet. It will, it will blast forth this royal, harmonious tone. And everyone will recognize what that is. It's a sound, it's a voice that, that only a holy God can make. It's stunning, it's startling, it's, it's, it, it grabs all attention. I mean, if you and I are sitting here right now and somebody would walk in with a trumpet and start playing it, you know, think of the things that would come to your mind. Number one, why is somebody walking in playing a trumpet? Number two, uh, this, this royal idea, this, it, w- it would grab everybody's attention. Well, can you imagine that sound or something like it, more magnificent than that, coming from this just magnificent throne? And all attention is grabbed by that voice. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So at once, John is confronted with the glory of God in heaven on his throne. It is the dominant uh, picture, it's the dominant figure in this scene. I mean, without question, everything is centered around it. And speaking of being in the spirit, he's kind of speaking like uh, Paul had spoken, right, about being caught up into the heavens and seeing these things, he's, he's seeing something that only uh, somebody pure in spirit should see. It's being revealed as the Holy Spirit has carried him to this vision, to this pure place to witness this. And the one who sat on the throne had the appearance of these amazing uh, gems and jewels. And Jasper and Cornelian can certainly speak to some glory and some purity of what he's seeing, but they're meant to capture um, the essence of the person there. 
he's more than valuable. He's the most valuable. He's the most glorious. He is the most pure. He is the most radiant. He is perfection. The most magnificent appearance that John has seen. Then it says there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The, the rainbow, right, that was shown to Noah, a sign of promise that God would keep his covenant not to destroy the earth with water again. It was a symbol of God taking his, his bow, his power, and, and laying it down as a promise not to do that again. A sign of peace with his people. And so it's, it's displaying that he is powerful. That is, there's no mistake there. It is obvious as it's draped around this throne. And it's glorious as it's seen as an emerald. So God's power, God's beauty, all trying to be encapsulated by John in verse 3 there. And it's impossible. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, this is sometimes confusing. We're going to see these guys pop up again throughout the Revelation. We're going to see them pop up again in Revelation 5. <coughs> but you have 24 thrones, 24 elders. Now, people often argue they could be representative of 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, which would make 24. That could signal that God, right, is is the same God as of the Old Testament as the New Testament. He's the same God of the Jews as the Gentiles. He, he is the God of the universe. And these 12 representatives of the tribes of Israel and these 12 apostles would represent that. Or they could represent the 24 Levitical priests that, that David talks about, serving in the temple, leading in worship. And it's often said that if you look into Revelation 5 and you see these figures, that it seems that they're different than the redeemed people of God. That these are heavenly figures that weren't actual people that were redeemed, but that are like angels. So you can get lost in all that. I think the best explanation is that they are figures or people that do kind of lead and symbolize who is worthy of worship. And they direct all attention and all other figures, even in their purity and, and in their um, power, to his throne. That whatever they represent, whatever they lead, whatever they're supposed to signal to us, they're pointing to his throne. Right? I like to think that you've got the 12 tribes represented and then you've got the 12 apostles. But I don't know. They seem to be speaking of others as redeemed and not themselves. As you look in the uh, first half of Revelation, Revelation 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. 
and before the throne there were as it there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind so again you have the atmospheric working of power and and elements and and all these things that he's seeing it's it's an act of glory is what he's seeing it's it's a communication that it's not just like a, a solid state figure, like a golden calf type figure. But this is an active glory that he is on his throne reigning. His power is at work all over the place. He is radiating sovereignty and beauty and absolute authority. And that these peals of thunder, these sounds that he's hearing are are communications of that glory and of that power. And if that sounds also poetic and, and kind of abstract, it's because it probably is. We, we, we don't understand this. But you see the activity there. And then, and then laid out before it, right? There's like a sea of glass, like crystal. It's not polluted. No plastic bottles there. There's no dead fish floating. <coughs> but it's calm. It's peace. God does not live in turmoil. He creates peace. He is the prince of peace. He dwells in peace. He will bring us to live in eternal peace with him. Everything is still and calm. You know how easy it is to upset the calmness of the waters, whether in a lake or a pond or a bathtub or whatever. You know how easy it is? Just a, just a droplet of a disturbance will cause a ripple effect. But there is nothing like that before his throne. It, so much so that John's saying it looks like crystal. And you know that your crystal wear, if you have any, if that's a thing anymore, I don't know, I don't have any, but uh, you, you want it to look spotless, clear. That's why we say the term crystal clear. No imperfection, all purity. And it's as, as it's described as a sea, all calm, all peace. Jesus demonstrated this in a, in a way with the, di with the uh, disciples on the Sea of Galilee, right? When he calmed that storm, he took that raging, crazy, hurricane-like atmosphere and he made the water like glass. This is the peace that he brings in the gospel. This is the peace that he lives in. You and I don't know what it's like to live in peace. I have four boys. I don't know what peace is. But someday I will. And that's not a vacation to a beach somewhere. That's in heaven before his throne. Peace. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are these four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. This could signify the, the knowledge or the <coughs> overwhelming um, sovereignty or, or, or omnipresence of God throughout all the universe. He sees everything. He knows everything. 
the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So you have (coughs) these creatures that are akin to things that we know, lion, ox, man, eagle. Those have been used in different ways and different religions and different interpretations of (coughs) revelation to show different things, different aspects of God or different aspects of our world or things like that. But but what he's meant to say, I think the only thing that I want to point you to here without getting too deep into those, I know some of you would like me to do that, but is that all of creation is directed in full and pure worship, day and night, without ceasing, to the Lord God Almighty, who in himself is perfection. They have all these eyes. They have these powerful figures and bodies. They have these wings. They seem to be all-knowing and all-powerful and all this. But yet they are directing unceasing worship to the one on the throne. You know, it's it's interesting, right? When you take your kids to a big event or a sporting event or to hear someone speak or something, and 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 they're often distracted by all the other things that are going on. You're like, no, this look at the <laughs> look at the person there, or look at look at the game or whatever, and and they're noticing all these little things, and what John is communicating is, look Look at all this that's going on. Look at how this looks, how the throne looks, how it looks before the throne, how these creatures look, and, and what they're doing. And, and all of that is centered on the Lord God Almighty. And, and we sing this, right? We sing this in worship. We repeat. Notice this. When we sing this together, We are repeating what is being sung and said before the throne of God in the heavens day and night. The heavenly worship is being mirrored at FBC Holt when we are directing our attention, our gaze to the one on the throne and not all the other things around that are proclaiming his glory. Like, wow, I notice when creation looks beautiful, right? I notice that. But that is meant to direct you to the one who's most beautiful and most glorious. And so turn and worship him. Mountains are going to fall away. Oceans are going to be done away with. He's going to make all things new. So if there is beauty left in this world, which there is, that is meant to direct you to something that is incomprehensibly beautiful and holy. And in fact, as you repeat something three times in Judaism, it's a signal of perfection. Something, someone to be perfectly holy is somewhat foreign to us, right? Isaiah 6. 
Isaiah 6, 2. Well, starting in verse 1, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, right? Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. These are the things that are happening around the throne of God. It's worship. <coughs> and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So as these magnificent living creatures are proclaiming the holiness of God, these maybe even these seraphim figures that even find themselves unworthy by right covering their eyes and their feet, unworthy to be around the throne of God. As they're proclaiming that, these, these 24 elders or these 24 leaders or kings or whatever they are, uh, representatives, are falling down before him who is seated on the throne to do what? To worship him. When you read the Gospels and people fall down before Jesus, does Jesus uh, direct their worship somewhere else? Direct their adoration somewhere else? No. Whenever they fall down before him, it is completely acceptable. Whenever they fall down before Peter or John or Paul, they always direct them to get up. Get up. Uh, this No. You fall down before the throne of God, before God, not me. I'm not God. But when they fall down before Jesus, that's right. And he accepts that in the Gospels. Watch for that. He's explaining to you who's worthy of worship. And it's him. And what, not only do they do this, but they take their crowns. Whatever that may represent. What God has bestowed upon them in power and honor and glory, they all direct it back to him. That's why I like what MacArthur always says. <laughs> every, uh, we can take absolutely no credit for everything we do because it's all empowered by God. He's what? Laid out good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2. Before him, our good works are like filthy rags, Isaiah I mean, everything that we have gained, everything that we are, everything that proclaims anything good or any glory to his name is due back to him. It's, it's not for us to create our own kingdom and our own heavens and our own glory and our own throne. That's why I believe Mormon theology is so evil. Because it makes the lie in the Garden of Eden something to aim for. To be God. To gain this sort of worship for yourself. 
not only to have a crown and a throne, but to have a whole world and all these spirit children who look to you and worship you. Straight from Satan himself. And notice how they recognize him. When, when they've cast their crowns down, they're prostrate before the throne. They are saying, not only are you worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, these things we're casting before you, but <coughs> this is because you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. In other words, eternally, sovereignly creating and making these things happen and exist. And he's worthy of worship because that's who he is. That's who he is. You know, in uh, the book of Acts, when the church is gathered together to pray, I believe for the release of Peter from prison, they address God as the sovereign Lord over all creation, by whom, whose will, all these things exist. In other words, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power because by your will, you make these things and you cause these things to be. Things that did not exist, you make exist. And the idea here, as we're going to get into, is that he has made a people exist. He has made a people exist as his holy people to reign in the heavenlies to enjoy that peace before his throne to to sing with these heavenly creatures about his worth and about his holiness and about his glory and if you think that sounds narcissistic or egotistic of god then then you're not positioning your mind in the right way to understand that he's worthy of that there's no one else that exists like that that's why Israel used to recite the, or still does even recite the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. There is no other like him. God himself communicates this, right, as he's dealing with Job and answering his suffering and his strife. Does God say why he's Job suffering that? No, he's just saying who he is. And then Job's able to respond rightly at the end of that. And God decides to restore everything to him. But, but what he was doing, he was teaching him that there is only one like me. And you are right to look to the only one like me. You're right to find help there. You're right to find hope there. You're right to find peace there. You're right to understand that only power and glory reside there. And as John has been invited into that, he is signifying that he wants us to know these things about his throne and his glory. Why? Because we are going to experience that. And Revelation 5 is going to show us how we're going to experience that. Through the lamb who was slain, who these creatures are also praising day and night. Worshiping for who he is. So we are greatly informed by these scenes, this revelation, and how we worship God. 
We worship him for who he is and how holy he is and what he's worthy of. That's why we are very adamant about making sure that all of our worship, all of our songs, all of our messages are directed to his glory. We are not here for ourselves as consumers. Certainly, we are here to love one another, encourage one another to fulfill right one of those great commandments of the law. But we are namely here, gathered on a Sunday morning, the Lord's day, in worship because he's worthy of worship. So we sing things that are true about him, sing things that are right about him. And, and something that we should think about more and more is that we are mirroring what is happening day and night anyway. And we're meant to live our lives in worship, we're told in Romans 12. Our lives is a living sacrifice, giving constantly before his throne, looking constantly to him and his glory and perfection and his loving kindness as he condescends even from that to love us, to work things in us for that glory that we will be able to see and live in forever. And so let's take a, uh, a page out of the book here for our own lives and our own worship. And if these amazing, awesome creatures are worshiping him day and night, not ceasing to give him praise, or to speak of his holiness, then why do we ever take a break in our hearts from worshiping him? He's worthy. And he showed Job that. If you're suffering, God's still worthy. God's still good. God still has glory to show you. And so I pray that these pictures of his glory would, would do much to comfort you and to give you confidence and to give you hope in the things yet to come, to position you rightly right now before his throne, to worship him, to find joy and peace there. <clears throat> and maybe if you don't find these comforting thoughts, maybe he's using them to speak to you mercy and grace, that you're welcome before such a throne, even as a unholy sinner. He can make you a worthy saint through his son. And so I pray that you would respond to a holy God right now for a couple minutes. And then we're going to stand and we're going to sing to him, sing his praises like these creatures.